This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight we apply our patent-pending Stanley rubric to Hoosiers from 1986, directed by David Anspaugh, written by Angelo Pizzo, starring Gene Hackman, Barbara Hershey, and Dennis Hopper. However, quickly before we get to the show, next week we will be discussing my favorite baseball movie, Major League. Directed and written by David S. Ward, starring Tom Berenger, Corbin Burnson, Rene Russo, Charlie Sheen, and Bob Euchre. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Also, as of, I believe, a little over an hour ago, I finished a seven-year goal to watch every Best Picture winner ever made, going back all the way to 1928. And I wrote an article ranking all of them that is now available by the time you're listening to this on the website. So if you click through on some of the links that are available in the episode descriptions, you can go right to the website and view that article if you're at all interested. But for me, this is a celebration moment, seven years to try and finish all 93 films. And as always, please like, follow, rate, and review the show on whichever podcast platform you use so you get all of our content coming up. It's hard to follow you while you're doing your happy dance. It's more of a cheer dance while we're doing the podcast. Okay. Let's discuss Hoosiers then. Dad, what is your relationship to this movie? This is a movie, and, I can't, and I, I'm almost positive that a friend of mine from college and I went to see this film when I was a senior in college because, one, I always loved Gene Hackman as an actor, and two, it just looked good. And so I, I'm pretty sure I saw it at the theater and then was surprised that something as simple and clean as this could be nominated for Best Picture. It was not nominated for Best Picture. It was not. I thought for sure it was. It was not. Okay. It was only nominated for two Academy Awards, Original Score and Best Supporting Actor. Well, it should have been that year, I guess, so... And then I've watched it probably a couple of dozen times since. I've just always loved the film, and to me, this is almost the epitome of putting together a fairly low-budget film with good acting and a good, simple story and doing everything well, and you can really make something that is great. So I don't know how many of these films you've seen. I've only seen one of them. But the Best Picture nominees of that year, since you said this should have been up for Best Picture, you can kick out one of these. A Room with a View, The Mission, Hannah and Her Sisters, Children of a Lesser God, and Platoon. Uh, Hannah and Her Sisters. Do you even know what that is? Yes, it's a Woody Allen film. Okay. Um, Martin... um... Landau was in it, and uh, I don't know if he got nominated for Best Supporting Actor or not, but I know he was highly acclaimed for doing this piece. And um, I saw it, and I'm like, 
Um, never really understood it. Ultimately, one sister's husband had an affair with the other sister and just did not speak a lot to me. Just a lot of people that I didn't find very, um, uh, that I found rather savory. Well, this is one of the few examples where I think that Platoon, by nature of being the only film that seems to have any legs after the fact, is clearly the one that should have won. And thankfully, the Academy somehow got that right. The only other nominees that probably could have been in the running this year that were not nominated, Blue Velvet, you had Hoosiers. Yes, The Color of Money, Aliens, and Stand By Me. Yeah, all good films. Children of a Lesser God was a very good film. I have not actually seen that one yet. Oh, yeah. Well, anyway. It's almost surprising, though, that uh, another movie we're going to be discussing in the nearer coming months was not also nominated for Best Picture, given the acclaim and absolute public iconography that it had that particular year, Top Gun. Um, Have you watched it? You know I have. With you. Yeah, I know. And then you wonder why it was not nominated? It was a joke. Ah, good. Because otherwise I'd question your cojones. Why would... What? That doesn't make any sense. Okay, so it doesn't. Why, why would you question my manhood over liking Top Gun? I think most people would be the opposite way. Uh, uh, it was so bad. God. Uh. You want to question my, like, movie or cinephile uh, attributes or whatever, fine. But my manhood for not liking Top Gun? Or for potentially liking Top Gun? That makes no sense. Not really, because ultimately I think it's just a pseudo. It's kind of like uh, the Freudian aspect of carrying a handgun. You know, it's just an extension. And I think Top Gun was just an extension of a lot of uh, manhood. Okay, I'm not even sure whether I, I need to I need to edit that out or not. Good oh Lord. well, whatever. It's just. Uh, I lived during that time period, and there were a lot of guys thumping their chest because they felt inferior. So I think if I remember right, and I'm really accessing the deep recesses of my mind here, but I believe the first time that I watched this movie, you and mom had gone out for a date night, like on a Friday when I was like maybe 11 or 12 or something like that. And I, I was at home to watch the girls, and you guys had gone up to like Wausau. And seemed to go by, and I swear to you this is the case, Sam's Club. And decided that this was like on sale for like five bucks. So you liked the movie and decided to buy it. And then spent the entire Saturday morning trying to tell me how good a movie this was and that I needed to see it. And it probably took me until sometime later that afternoon or something that I finally just acquiesced and put this on. And I've liked the film ever since. It's an easy film to like, but yeah, it was kind of a weird uh, start for me with this movie. Mm. See, that's what you get for questioning your parents. Often it works out for me. Sure. So what is it about Hoosiers that makes it the basketball movie for most people? It's simple. <laughs> it's, it is so clean. That's the thing that I just, every time I watch it, I just cannot imagine how absolutely simple it is. There's nothing, there's no 
uh, huge egos. There's nothing overly done. It's all done within confines. It is so well put together and constructed. It doesn't overreach. It doesn't require huge emotional acting by several of the actors. It's just, there's just, it's, it's beautiful by its simplicity. First off, I just disagree wholeheartedly. I think this movie has a lot of plot holes. I think that there are a lot of things that it is choppy about that it doesn't necessarily explain. Uh, For the majority of the movie, it's montages set to music and it plays like a highlight video on ESPN without announcers. (laughs) And to say this movie with Gene Hackman basically playing a much more neutered version of Bob Knight is a movie without (laughs) ego is just completely absurd to me. But what I think this movie gets right specifically, and it's in the basketball sequences. I started thinking about this today when I was starting to put my notes together. Basketball may be the only sport where we have a last second play that actually would naturally decide the game. And we have it more often than not. When we talk every March about these buzzer beaters and these one-game scenarios, how many other sports have an aspect where it goes down to quite literally the last second, and you're deciding games based on mere matters of split seconds? There is no other sport. Football, you might have a play at the end of the game, but it's rare. It's not going to be manufactured on an almost every other game basis. Baseball, you're going to have maybe a play at the end of the game or a walk-off home run, but it's not necessarily manufactured in the same way that the ticking down clock is for basketball. Basketball almost has this nature of the last minute of the game becomes such a pivotal point to how the rest of it has been. For 47 minutes, or in college basketball, 39 minutes, or in high school basketball, I think it's, what, 32 minutes or 31 minutes? The first whatever, however many minutes don't matter. The last minute somehow makes everything else that much more tense, and the stakes get raised almost in a way that I don't know if you can compete in any other sport. And as such, there's a magical quality to this movie with a lot of the shot making, with a lot of the plays that are made, with a lot of the decisions, this movie specifically has multiple scenarios where you have last second critical plays in basketball games. And yes, the basketball playing is clunky, but you have heroes come out of nowhere and have this Cinderella-esque rise of redemption for a team that isn't supposed to be able to compete with teams that are much more skilled and have their pick of the litter of the best that the state has to offer. And so between the Cinderella aspect of this team that nobody could appreciate from this small school that had 64 people in it versus these giant schools from other urban areas or inner city areas and rising to the occasion continuously, that's what to me makes this seem almost romantic in the way it's constructed. And I really don't know if there's any other basketball movie that has been able to capture that magical or poetic quality. I think this movie perfectly blends into how we celebrate our sports culture in America. All right, let's dig into the details of this movie. 
Do you have a plot summary ready for us? Oh, I do. In Hickory, a small rural community in Indiana, Norman Dale, Gene Hackman, is brought to the local high school in need of a new basketball coach. It is soon obvious that Dale has checkered has a checkered past and is seeking redemption and another chance. Dale faces an overzealous town, a snide fellow teacher, Myra Fleener, Barbara Hershey, and the decision by the best basketball player in the school, Jimmy, to not play. Dale employs a hard-boiled approach to instill fundamentals and teamwork in the young players. His methods irritate the town and a showdown looms. Will he win over Jimmy, the town, Myra, and the team and achieve ultimate redemption? Thank you. Cast for this movie, David Anspaw, director, Angelo Pizzo, writer, Jerry Goldstein, composer, Gene Hackman as Norman Dale, Barbara Hershey as Myra Fleener, Dennis Hopper as Shooter Flatch, Sheb Woolley as Cletus Summers, Maris Volanis as Jimmy Chitwood, David Niedorf as Everett Flatch, Brad Long as Buddy Walker, Steve Holler as Raid Butcher, Brad Boyle as Whit Butcher, Wade Shank as Ollie McClellan, Kent Poole as Merle Webb, Scott Summers as Strap Pearl, Fern Persons as Opal Fleener, and Chelsea Ross as George Walker. Recognition for this movie, Hoosiers has been named by many publications as the best or one of the best sports movies ever made. Hoosiers currently holds a 91% on Rotten Tomatoes and a 76% on Metacritic. Hoosiers was nominated for Best Supporting Actor for Dennis Hopper and Original Score for Goldstein. Hoosiers was ranked number 13 by the American Film Institute on its 100 Years 100 Cheers list of most inspirational films. The film was the choice of readers of USA Today as the best sports movie of all time. In 2001, Hoosiers was selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry by the Library of Congress, due in part to an especially large number of nominations from Indiana citizens. In June 2008, AFI revealed its 10 Top 10, the best 10 films in 10 classic American film genres, and after polling over 1,500 people from the creative community, Hoosiers was acknowledged as the fourth best film in the sports genre. Top three were Raging Bull, Rocky, and The Pride of the Yankees. In 2015, MGM partnered with the Indiana Pacers to create hickory uniforms inspired by the film. The Pacers first wore the tribute uniforms during select games in the 15-16 NBA regular season in honor of the film's 30th anniversary. Did you know? The 1954 state championship game, which inspired the movie's final game, was played between the Milan Indians and Muncie Central Bearcats. Milan won 32-30. Did you know? For the scene where Dennis Hopper stumbles onto the court drunk during the sectional game, Hopper wanted a 10-second notice before the director called action. He spun around for 10 seconds, allowing him to stagger onto the court and appear drunk. He remembered James Dean and Giant from 1956, asking George Stevens for 30 seconds so he could spin around to better feel the inebriation. Did you know? In the original script, Shooter leaves rehab to attend the state championship game. Dennis Hopper, who had just gotten sober, thought this plot point was detrimental to the story. Said director David Anspaugh, We sat down over coffee, and Hopper said, Guys, I wish I had brought this up earlier. I knew there was something that bothered me about this scene. It doesn't work. It can't happen. It would suggest Shooter didn't take his sobriety seriously. And I know from experience that Shooter made a real commitment, and there's no way he would leave that hospital. And Angelo and I had been living with the scene in our heads for years, and we really argued against cutting it. And Dennis said, No, trust me. And we trusted him, and he was absolutely right. Did you know? 
Harry Dean Stanton turned down the role of Shooter. In 2013, he expressed regret over saying no to the film and couldn't remember his reasons for declining it. Did you know? While delighted with his Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actor, Dennis Hopper privately admitted to friends and colleagues that he felt the Academy nominated him for the wrong film. He thought he should have been nominated for his performance in Blue Velvet. Yeah. Did you know? The scene with Jimmy and Coach Dale talking while Jimmy shot baskets was filmed in one take. Maris Villanis said that he wasn't even listening to him. I was just concentrating on making them, and I made one, and they just kept going in. Did you know? In the locker room before the final game, on the blackboard are the last names of the players on the opposing team. These are the real last names of the actors who make up the Hickory team. Did you know? Maris Villanis was told that if he missed the movie's last basket on his first attempt, the fans would still rush the floor in celebration and he would get another try later. Luckily, when cameras rolled, he made the shot on his first attempt, even though he had missed it repeatedly during rehearsals. Did you know? Said director David Anspaugh, quote, Before filming began, I was so excited to have Gene Hackman. He was the coolest guy to hang out with. He was funny and irreverent and told great stories and all that. And then, first day of shooting, I didn't recognize him. He became an entirely different person, and he just made it hell on earth for me every day. He was everything negative. He wanted off the movie. Did you know? Gene Hackman and David Anspaugh clashed throughout most of the production. Gene had me on the verge of a nervous breakdown, Anspaugh told Vulture. He gave me my first anxiety attack. One morning I woke up and I couldn't walk. The room was spinning. I thought every day of the film was going to be my last because Gene's agent was trying to get me fired. According to Anspaugh, the only thing that saved his job was the dailies. The producer said, look, David's not getting fired, the director recalled, and we showed a half hour of dailies to Gene's agent, and he saw that what we were making was actually pretty good. Did you know? Writer-producer Angelo Pizzo described how Gene Hackman caused problems during filming. Quote, when he arrived, he was in generally a foul mood. We called him the Black Cloud. He started complaining about everything. There were some blow-ups on the set, some throwing of jackets, and near fistfights. There was all sorts of drama on the set. Then Dennis Hopper arrived three weeks into shooting, and he settled Gene down. I think Gene decided to just suck it up and finish it and get out of there. According to Pizzo, on the last day of filming, Hackman said, I just want you to be prepared for the fact that this movie might get on a few screens here in Indiana, but then it will end up in the dustbin of films that never made it, and the only people who will remember it are you two, and I hope I forget it when my plane lands in Los Angeles. Commented Pizzo, Gene had a lot more experience in filmmaking than we did, so we thought his assessment was probably accurate. Did you know? During a happy montage of Hickory winning a string of games, Dale was shown saying something to Shooter on the bench that made Shooter laugh. It wasn't until years later that David Anspaugh learned what Dennis Hopper was laughing at. Gene Hackman had told him, Hopper, I hope you've invested well because you and I are never going to work after this movie. This is a career-ending film for both of us. Did you know? Gene Hackman, who during filming had predicted the movie would be a flop, insisted on viewing a rough cut of the film before going in to re-record some of his audio. Angelo and I knew that if he didn't like the rough cut, he wouldn't show up at the studio to re-record his dialogue, David Anspaugh said. But he showed up, he walked into the room, took his glasses off, looked me in the eyes, and he said, How the hell did you do that? (laughs) Did you know? David Anspaugh and Angelo Pizzo wanted to release their two-hour, 48-minute version of the movie. The studio insisted that they cut it down to 114 minutes. Among the many scenes cut was Buddy asking to return to the team and scenes that developed Norman and Myra's budding romance more. 
Anspaugh said the audience really got cheated and robbed over the cuts. Did you know? The actor playing Ollie once left the set to watch his high school basketball team play. He was a senior on the team when he got the role and was feeling homesick, so he decided to go watch them. The crew had to contact his mother to get him to return. Did you know? An actual Milan Indian guard, Ray Kraft, was in the movie. Kraft greeted the Huskers when they got to the state finals, and he also told Coach Dale it was time to take the court before the state finals. With that, we'll take a quick break, and we will be right back. Welcome back. Thank you for rejoining us. Dad, what would you say is the elevator pitch for this movie? Redemption and overcoming odds through the eyes of a high school basketball team. I think we're similar in stature, but it's less about redemption for me and more a David and Goliath story that could only be told through the magic of playoff basketball. Ah. Best performance for you? I had a hard time, so I don't do this very often, but I awarded it to two. I went with both Gene Hackman and Dennis Hopper. I think Hackman carries the film, and I think Hopper had the chops to do this. And it's important to remember, yes, and you did mention Blue Velvet, and (laughs) Dennis Hopper's performance of Blue Velvet was absolutely fantastic. It was better than this. I understand what his point was, but that film was so bizarre, I think half of the Academy didn't understand what the fuck it was. So that's why they didn't nominate him for it. But Hopper had just gotten out of rehab. In fact, both Hopper and Barbara Hershey, part of the reason why they got both of them on such a low budget was is because they both were looking for work. They'd been through rehab and were just trying to get back into movies. As far as Hackman goes... I don't know. I, I, I can't say that there's too many other than, uh, what is it, uh, Moose Jaw, his last film. Was yeah, the, I think it's like Welcome to Moose Jaw or something. Yeah, Welcome to Moose Jaw. I think that's the only Gene Hackman film that I've seen that I go, eh. Oh, come on. I thought that was even, you know, at least somewhat endearing. Yes. I mean, even the cameos where he's the blind guy <laughs> And young Frankenstein. I mean, he's just, yeah, he, he plays everything wonderfully. So uh, so I just had to because I just love Gene Hackman. And uh, I understand he's 92 now. That would be one of my ultimate things if I could, is to just sit and have coffee and talk to Gene Hackman for an hour or two and get stories. Gene Hackman was my best secondary performance. He dominates the majority of the speaking parts of this movie and creates kind of an iconic coaching character upon which we almost compare, unfortunately, a lot of coaches against that he's somehow, even though he's this military disciplinarian, that every practice has to be run like it's boot camp. And (laughs) I don't know if that's necessarily been a good thing for sports over the last 30 years, but... It kind of is what it is. He is the hard-nosed, sometimes vulgar, often ill-tempered coach who does everything he can to win, but he has this softer side that they at least tap into. And I think it's kind of similar to the way that a lot of players, if you talk to like the 60s Packers, 
used to describe Vince Lombardi, that he could be one of the toughest people that you would ever meet. He would get in your face, but he'd also be the first one to throw his arms around you and give you a huge ass hug. And so he creates not only this vulnerability and this flawed character that's somehow layered, but also this strong-willed coach who will tell a referee he's got pigeon shit in his eyes and it becomes iconic. (laughs) Yeah. I went with Hopper for my most charismatic because he had to be charismatic. It's the only way that shooter, that shooter character works. I mean, realistically, this is a bum, a guy who is an absolute drunk that you should not be rooting for in any way, shape or form. But when he jumps on his bed in the rehab clinic at the end, you feel just as elated as he does. You feel just as good at the end of the picket fence scene as he does, because it's redemption not only for him, but it's somebody that needed redemption giving him a chance in a way that nobody else was willing to do and saw something that was redeemable. And yet, I think only with the vulnerability that Hopper's able to give this, where he's somewhat reluctant and shies away from a lot of things, but you clearly see that there's some brilliance there that this character works at all. And it really shouldn't. So I think it was the absolute sheer stroke of luck to get him as the casted role in this. But ultimately my best performance is neither of them because this movie is made by long ass stretches of montage that are set to one of the best scores in a sports movie you will ever find. My best performance goes to Jerry Goldstein, because when I think of Hoosiers, I think of that rolling, just absolutely magnificent, triumphant score, and the last second of the basketball game in every one of these playoff situations where the ball goes in the hoop and everybody cheers, and there's the loud blares of the brass instruments, and everybody gets on the floor and celebrates. To me, that's what this movie is. It's a bunch of sports plays set to that brilliant score. And so Jerry Goldstein, for me, makes this movie. Okay. Who is your best secondary? Angelo Pizzo. I I thought his um, knowledge of small-town America, of small-town high schools, small-town basketball teams, the interplay of the parents, how this whole thing works... I just thought that the script itself had a lot of nuances and intricacies that uh, just came from somebody that had to have lived in that atmosphere. He just can't write the scripted ending of a basketball game very well. Oh, why? Oh, we're going to get to it. Oh, crazy. Okay. You can't you're up, well enough alone. You're up three points with less than a minute to go in an era where there's no shot clock and everybody's playing four corners offense. Why the hell are you trying to shoot like three possessions in a row very quickly to give the other team a chance at possessing the ball? (laughs) Yeah, I know. I mean, that happens in literally every game that they have somehow like seven possessions in the last minute in a game that has no shot clock. Yeah, I still I still remember high school ball when I was. It happened after the year after I graduated, but uh, Beloit had hired back the assistant coach who had been at a rival school in Janesville, and uh, he or at the time his former school was number one in the state, 
and they ran a stall. And the final score was 11 to 6. The entire game. No shot clock. This game is supposedly based on the championship game that was 30 to 32. And routinely, I think Wisconsin has its only national championship for basketball in 1941. And I'm pretty sure the final score was 42 to 39. Yes, my old high school principal was on that team. I know that the final score in this game, I think, is like 44-42 or 42-40, something like that. But they make up like six points in the last, I don't know, 50 seconds of the game. (laughs) I mean, how many possessions did you realistically have during the course of that game? (laughs) Yeah, okay. Anyway, preempting myself a little bit, but uh, most charismatic for you. Dennis Hopper. I... uh... Dennis Hopper, um, I mean, if you listen to some of the stories of Dennis Hopper around the time of uh, Easy Rider and into the 70s and how absolutely high, strung out, drunk he constantly was for a decade, uh, and then to see him clean himself up and to put in these kinds of performances, he's a kind of an actor that you root for. And uh, in this particular case, he was very enduring and just had a quality about him that made you want to root for him. Agreed. And again, I go back to it. This is a character that should be ineffably unlikable, and yet it's not. And that's the only reason it works. I don't know, because half of the uh, character is my relative, so. Best scene. Uh, This has a lot of different scenes for me. I couldn't really combine a lot of these into one. So I think, let's see here. I have like 12 or 13. Uh, Norman Dale arrives. First practice. Norm visits Jimmy. Welcome to Indiana basketball. Shooter joins the team. And I jumped quite a bit of, of the movie just from those two scenes. Referendum meeting. The picket fence. Division finals. Everett and Shooter reconnect. Butler Fieldhouse, pregame speech, and state championship. What out of those do you think is the best scene? I thought and thought about this, and I've gone back and forth. I I like the referendum scene simply because it appears to be going one direction, and you're sympathetic to Dale because it looks pretty certain that he's going to lose his job and he's going to have uh, failed. And yet, everything he has done has convinced Jimmy that he's the real deal and that he was worth respecting that encourages Jimmy to come back. And then just seeing the sheer deflation of the anti-Dale forces in that referendum is uh, rather satisfying. Oh, absolutely. The turn that that makes, I think the first time I watch it, but even you know, this last time that I've seen it, you still get that same elation every time Jimmy delivers three of his four lines from the movie. It's time for me to start playing ball, but if I'm going to play, coach stays or I go. Yeah. (laughs) And it it just, the air falls out of the room. But I don't know. I don't think it's much better to get than probably the last minute of that state championship game. I, I think you could maybe make an argument. I love both of the pregame speeches that happen, 
before the divisional finals is one of the ones that they play on. They play on jumbotrons before constant football games, basketball games, uh, baseball games, everything under the sun for sports. That's like one of the great pregame speeches you'll ever get. And the one yep. before that, the state championship game, which is the David and Goliath, and I love you guys. And that one always kind of chokes me up a bit. But still, at the end of the day, you know, the state championship, and I'll get it get to it here in a moment, the most indelible moment for me is the minute the ball goes through the hoop and Jimmy wins the game. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's okay. no better mo- moment from this movie. The fact that it basically, and it, you may have a little bit of a coda on at the end of the game where the kid's in the gym shooting the basketball and you see the picture of the state championship and you, you get that small moment, but really everything with this movie comes to the great conclusion of we get that final shot. The ball goes through the hoop. Everybody's up in arms in adulation and you get the concluding music. You get a little bit of the crowd fervor and that's it. The whole thing was leading up to them doing the impossible and him making that shot. So favorite scene for you. It's the locker room scene at the final the David and Goliath story at the end. Let's win it for all the small schools. Let's win it for my, I'm winning it for my dad. I'm winning it. Let's win it for coach. And then David and Goliath. It's just, it's just like reaches into your soul and just tugs. Absolutely. It's where I went for this as well. I think both of those pregame speeches in my book, we're going to be winners. That plays in my mind all the time. I think I actually used it once during uh, one of my coaching games, one of the, <laughs> like, four I ever had. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, you got to imagine that a bunch of 6th, 7th, and 8th graders had never seen this movie. Well, I know. It, it's it, Your comment is almost reminiscent of uh, Jim Valvano, who's talking about how, you know, he's going to, I want you to think of three things. <laughs> God, family, and the Green Bay Packers. Green Bay Packers. He's telling it to his team. Yes, that were not the Green Bay Packers. Yes. (laughs) Oh, there's another one. Every time I see that speech at the uh, ESPY, I still cry. That would make anyone weep. What's your most indelible moment? Seeing Jimmy carried off the court. it's, It's always been some sort of fantasy of mine. To have that moment, that absolute feeling that everyone loves you or likes you or loves you. I think that's every guy's kind of like dream is ultimately, even when they're playing beer league softball, is to have their girlfriend go, oh, when he does something out on the field, even if it's relatively minor. It's just that feeling. It's hard to replicate or to think about. And quite frankly, I'll admit there are a lot of moments and a lot of things I do that I'm trying to gain that adulation. Yeah, it is a pretty nice feeling. I've nailed a half-court winner to win a game. I have also been carried off the court on people's shoulders. And you can catch a glimpse of that if you can find it in a very deep rabbit hole on YouTube in a mockumentary I made in high school. I won't give you the name because that'll probably help you out. But if you can find it, it's there. 
Oh, yes. This is a common conversation on Thursday night men's group that uh, they're trying to find this. Oh, they haven't found it? No. You don't know where to find it either? I'm not making it necessarily easy. I see. I think I know where to find it. I know exactly how to find it. You have to basically type the title in along with my name. (laughs) But yes, the Port Edwards High School is still probably the number one viewing audience of that particular film. There's a teacher there that uh, I guess plays it for all of his students every year. Ah. He was a couple of years younger than me when we made the movie, but his brother was one of the producers and creators with me. I see. This uh, a particular special education teacher? Yes. Yeah. So <laughs> anyway, with that, we will take another quick break and we will be right back. Welcome back. Thank you for rejoining us. Dad, before we get too much further, do we have anyone to remember this week? Oh, we have a long list, unfortunately. Peter Bowles, uh, he was 85, English actor, Rumpled of the Bailey, To the Manor Born, The Bounder, Agatha Christie's Perot in Love and War, For Love of Benji, Off the Rills, uh, with Kelly Preston, is actually supposed to be released this year. It was Kelly Preston's last film before she passed of breast cancer. Longtime character actor. Robert Vincent O'Neill, American screenwriter, film director, and producer, did Wonder Woman, Angel, Avenging Angel, Emilio Delgado. For those of my generation, he was uh, on Sesame Street, played Luis, and uh, had done a few different films over his career. John Cordy, uh, 85, American film director and animator, the autobiography of Ms. Jean Pittman, film I saw on TV back uh, probably when I was in grade school. Who are the DeBolts and where did they get 19 kids? Oliver's story, Once Upon a Time, The Candidate he was involved in. He did also work on Sesame Street and Electric Company doing short films. That was Twice Upon a Time. Uh, Twice Upon a Time, my mistake. Akira Takarada, Japanese actor who was in Godzilla, Life of the Expert Swordsman, and Ajiman, Tales of uh, Golden Geisha. He uh, was the voice uh, uh, dubbing a lot of American films into Japanese, such as he was the voice of Jafar in Aladdin. Conrad uh, Janis, an American musician and actor, he was in a lot of uh, television films, uh, did pieces in Mark and Mindy, That Hagen Girl, Happy Days, and Frasier. Mitchell Ryan, an American actor, character actor, I remember him very well. He was in the... uh, Daytime soap opera, Dark Shadows, which was a um, based on vampires and, a, and such that I used to watch with my babysitter when I was like six. Uh, Darman Gregg, uh, Lethal Weapon, he was in Midway and Magnum Force. Bernard Renault, uh, American journalist and writer, filmmaker, was in... Um, uh, he was killed uh, by gunfire uh, while filming in Ukraine. Ralph Ryach, uh, English actor, was in Braveheart, had done uh, several British films or British acting, uh, Macbeth, Lost Empires. And then uh, the most well-known, William Hurt, American actor, Kiss of the Spider Woman, Broadcast News, The Incredible Hulk, Body Heat, The Big Chill, Captain America, Civil War, won the Oscar in 1986. 
Yeah, I was not particularly familiar with a lot of the people on this list. I'm vaguely familiar with Miss Mitchell Ryan, but some of the work that these guys did, I'm sure, had an impact on me just generally. I'm not sure whether Robert Vincent O'Neill, which Wonder Woman we're referring to, if it was the TV show, since Angel and Avenging Angel, I'm pretty sure, are TV shows. If that was the Wonder Woman TV show, I did not actually see that one. But uh, Mitchell Ryan, you know, Lethal Weapon and Magnum Force are movies I've seen. And obviously William Hurt, been an actor for a long time. He's been a kind of quiet character actor for the most part since about the late 80s. But I've seen broadcast news. I think the thing most people would know him by is the last one you mentioned, Captain America Civil War, where I think he plays the Secretary of State in that particular movie and basically is the pseudo-villain, more or less. So we recognize all of them and their accomplishments and their contributions to the industry as well as entertainment at large here with a moment of silence. Thank you. All right, let's move to best funniest lines. First one I have up, Preacher Pearl. And David put his hand in the bag and took out a stone and slung it. And it struck the Philistine on the head and he fell to the ground. Amen. Took the best one right off the bat, huh? I guess. Yeah. Coat, Dale. What's gotten into you? Strap. The Lord. I can feel his strength. Coach. Well, keep his strength in that dribble, all right? Coach Dale. If you put your effort and concentration into playing to your potential, to be the best that you can be, I don't care what the scoreboard says at the end of the game, in my book, we're going to be winners. Coach, stick with your man. Think of him as chewing gum. By the end of the game, I want to know what flavor he is. Ultimately, it was dentine. Yes, I only picked that up on this viewing when I had the subtitles on. I actually had to (laughs) rewind it a little bit because I couldn't pick it up right away. (laughs) I didn't think dentine was actually a flavor. It might have been in like the 1950s or something. I don't know. All right. Uh, This is a line that I think you would deliver to me if you were ever my coach for anything. My practices aren't designed for your enjoyment. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Got it. Yeah, you're right. That sounds like me. They're designed for mine. Uh, yeah. Such a fucker. Oh, yeah. Well, okay. <laughs> uh, Got any left? I think you'll find it's the same exact measurements as our gym back in Hickory. In Hickory. Coach Dale, I've seen you guys can shoot, but there's more to the game than shooting. There's fundamentals and defense, said every coach ever. <laughs> yeah. Whether it's before he wins a championship or he gets his ass fired. <laughs> uh, yeah. Any left? Look, mister, there's uh, two kinds of dumb. Uh, the guy that gets naked and runs out in the snow and barks at the moon. And uh, yeah, the guy who does the same thing in my living room. First one, you don't, mat- or don't matter. The second one, you kind of forced to deal with. I've never understood what the fuck he's talking about. If you want to do something stupid, that's one thing. But if you're going to do something stupid and it directly calls me into it, I'm going to take your down. That's basically what he's saying. Okay. That's never made sense to me in the history of watching this movie. 
Yeah, well. I guess that's like hick slang for something. Do you have any left? That's what happens when you grow up in the metropolitan area of Wisconsin Rapids, as opposed to a small town. No, that's what happens when you grow up as Dana Duncan's kid instead of Elmer Fudd's. (laughs) Hey, Elmer Fudd was not a simpleton. Sure. (laughs) Do you have any left? No, I don't. All right. I've spent my wad. Okay. Disturbing images aside, let's move to the Stanley rubric. Legacy is up first. Do you want to go first or second? I'll go first. I think to some extent the industry still kind of holds this in some acclaim. I think that's been the case with some of the ratings, um, some of the consideration of the film as a sports movie and the ranking it has in the genre. So to that extent, for the industry, well, the 4.5, I think that within a certain sphere, probably more my age and older, it still holds a a very critical point. Uh, I'm not sure how much the movie means to a younger generation. You know, it helps that it's a, a period piece, so it doesn't really, it isn't as dated, but still... I'm finding that uh, it kind of wanes a bit. I've talked again. I talk with some of the people that I associate with my associates who are more your age. They all know the film, like the film, so I can't give it too low rate of marks. But I do think it's not quite as popular uh, anymore as it was. So I went with three point five for an eight total. So. A lot of the points you made are similar to the ones I was going to make, but I'll just have my small piece here. I think this has a bigger legacy among sports fans and specifically American sports fans than the public at large. I think internationally, the fact that they had to change the title of the film because no one outside of the United States knows what the fuck a Hoosier is, is indicative of where this movie kind of stops. It had no international box office in 1986, so this was not a wide release. It was not great domestically, which we'll get to in the next category. And I think, if anything, it's respected among the industry. And because of that, especially in the sports media industry, I think it's gotten a little bit wider legacy. But I agree with you. Anybody under the age of maybe 25, has anyone seen this movie or knows anything about it? Like, I don't know if the exposure rate of this movie is as high as we would think it necessarily was. I think there are some really old sports films that nobody has seen for, you know, multiple decades at this point, maybe stuff that I haven't even seen that may get some reputation within the industry and among cinephiles, but isn't something that necessarily holds up. I think sports movies somewhat tend to be of the moment and have a very short shelf life. And so for that, I went 4.5 for industry because I think they're propping this up a lot. But I went two and a half for the public and just split it right down the middle because I agree with you that it does have an audience among those that grew up with this movie or maybe showed it to their next generation of kids. But I think, you know, the the people like my grandfather really don't know much about this movie and the people that are younger than I probably don't much know, know much about this movie. So I ended up at a seven. That well, is a, I would say I would contend that if. People were flipping around uh, the channels and happened to come across this movie and watch it for a few minutes. It's 
endearing enough, it's it's grabbing the attention enough that people who would watch it that were not familiar with it would enjoy it. I don't think this is one that you can just flip the channel onto and have never seen it and then be able to pick it up. I think this is one you have to kind of watch it from about maybe the first 15 minutes in until the end because it has such a forward momentum even to be introduced to the characters and care anything about this. Because otherwise, as I said before, it's a lot of montages of sports clips that you may have no context for otherwise. So that's a 7.5 average between us. Impact significance. Uh, this had generally good reviews for those that actually bothered to review it and was seen as generally a positive but it was the 170th movie in 1986 and the 47th movie because it came at the end of 1986 in 1987. Nobody watched this movie, even at the time. I know we want to go back and say that this was somehow this like big phenomenon. It was not. I really don't know why this has such a legacy outside of sports fans giving it a life and legacy after the fact. So I went with a 3.5 for industry because I think it was respected a lot more by the peers of Gene Hackman than it was of Gene Hackman. But I went with a 1.5 for the audience for a five overall. Uh, I remember, and maybe that's why I went and actually saw it at the theater, because I was a faithful watcher of Siskel and Ebert at the movies. And I know both of them loved the film. Yes, Ebert's review is rather glowing. Yeah. And so I think, you know, and I'm trying to remember, this would have been either while I was in law school or in, uh, you said it was end of 86? It was the mid-November, like November 14th, 86 release. Maybe it was I came home from law school and went with some other friends or something and saw it now that I'm thinking about it. But it, to me, it just had a, a, a it, it was more than what I, than, it, it had more impact to me than what a lot of people said. And those that saw it, it was kind of like an almost an inside club. Those that had seen it thought, oh, this is great and would talk about the film versus those who hadn't seen it. So from the uh, impact of the industry, it had glowing reviews. So I went with a four simply because of the, the level of reviews. I went with a th- uh, 2.5 for the impact of the, of the group because, yeah, it didn't do as well. But I think it once it was released on video, it had an afterlife. It was a lot of people like me who saw it at the theaters and then said, oh, this is a really good film, you should watch it. And a lot of people going to the video stores, uh, yes, Blockbuster among the uh, others, and finding the film on, on video and watching it and enjoying it. So I think it had more impact and significance within the year, two years after its release than the immediate. So I went with a 2.5 for that for a 6.5 overall. Novelty. I went with a 7.5. It showed more or less the, the, the fact that it was in high school athletic or a high school team had not really been done. Most sports movies involved professionals, maybe a college, you know, Notre Dame, uh, you know, the Newt Rockney story, stuff like that. 
fact that it was a high school team, it was a period piece, the way it was done was somewhat novel. So I wanted an eight for novelty because it was somewhat unique. To me, this is a unicorn. It is a one of one. It may not necessarily be unique to sports movies as far as, you know, a lot of the sports movie tropes are in here. The coach is seeking redemption. The team is an underdog. The sport is easy enough to understand. There's going to be late game moments where we have to decide the game. But nobody has captured the spirit of underdog last second basketball in a way that's translatable to the audience at large in a way that this has. For me, this is a 10. Okay. Well, actually, I what was I at an 8? You had a 7.5. I'll, I'll go to eight now based on your comments. That's a nine average between us. The last category I forgot to give was a 5.75 average between us. Classicness, your category. It's a period piece. It's based in Indiana. It was about a men's team. Uh, other than Barbara Hershey, there really wasn't any female. I would love to get about a couple of points down or a point down from that for classicness simply because it's a testosterone-driven movie, but it's about men's basketball team. I, I, I don't understand how you could do anything else. And I didn't find anything cringeworthy about any aspect of it other than, you know, there was a few comments but even the, the uh, way they dealt with alcoholism was fairly enlightened and, uh, and well, well done, even for the time frame. I, I'm going to go with a 10 because I couldn't find any basis to really mark it down. All right. So this is one of the toughest and hardest grades I've ever had to think about as far as what the conversation around this movie after the fact has been. There are a lot of vocal critics that hype certain levels of racism due to the all-white school personified by a bunch of mid-level, mediocre white kids and one really good player beating the all-black team, which it's not completely all-black. I think there was one white player that I did identify during this viewing of the film. And notably, the biggest critic of this is Spike Lee. I don't think just them beating a black school in the championship game, which would have been historically accurate, is necessarily indicative of racism. I mean, you probably could have changed it to make it more every other instead of a predominantly black team that wasn't necessarily coached by a black coach. Although I did find in the research that the coach for the South Bend team or South Bend Central, I think it is, in, in the state championship game, was actually the Indiana coach for the two championship-winning teams after the Milan Indians won in 1954. So he was an actual Indiana State basketball coach that had won the title twice and had been a fairly successful coach in the late 50s. So it was somewhat of a stamp of approval of that. I don't know if that's helpful at all to any of this, but we are also setting up a lot of the sports movie tropes of the angelic heroic epitome of sportsmanship. In addition to all of that, this has a weird romance that is completely unnecessary to the movie. 
It has several big plot holes. The basketball is not necessarily well thought out or well reasoned, which is why you can't really script sports. And nevertheless, the biggest issue with this movie is that we've effectively run every Coach Dale out of sports nowadays. A coach who wants to be this militaristic would never survive over enthusiastic parents in 2022. And yet, all that being said, I still turn on the movie, the music plays, the montages come to life, the Coach Dale speeches still ring true, and when Jimmy hits that last shot, I'm still emotionally ecstatic. So, because I'm all over the place with this movie, I'm going to settle on my neutral baseline of seven. (laughs) Way to stick yourself out. So that's an 8.5 average between us. Yeah. How is 7 and 10 and 8.5? 1.5 and 1.5. It's the middle okay, difference. yeah, you're right. My mistake. I needed help with the math. You, yeah, okay. I was about to ask, but rewatchability. Uh, this is a 9 for me. It's not among the elite of my rewatchables. That would be the 10s. It's not even in quite the second tier, but I've probably seen this movie almost more than any other sports movie, with the exception maybe being the one we're doing next week. So for me, this is probably a once a year watch at least. And I I know the ins and outs of this film so well that I probably didn't need to rewatch it, but I was glad to on this time around to do it for the show. So it's a nine for me. This would be about as close to a 10 as possible, but this is a film that's best watched from the beginning. So I can't give it a perfect 10 for that reason. A 10 to me is... I'm flipping around the stations and I've got uh, a few minutes to watch something. Uh, I'm going to stop and sit and watch it for 20 minutes. So I went with a 9.5 for rewatchability for that reason. But uh, it was as close to a 10 as you could probably get to me simply because it's just such a good movie to me. All right. So that's a 9.25 average between us. So that leaves us with audience score. We had a 79% for Rotten Tomato users and an 80, or excuse me, a 79% for Google users and a 88% for Rotten Tomato users for an 8.35. So to recap, we had a 7.5 for Legacy, a 5.75 for Impact Significance, a 9 for Novelty, an 8.5 for Classicness, a 9.25 for Rewatchability, and an 8.35 for Audience Score, giving us a total of a 48.35. And that would currently place it on the list between Ferris Bueller's Day Off and The Social Network. Oh, I would have thought it had been a little higher. It's in the mid-40s right now. So, remaining questions for this one. Oh, what ended up happening to Coach Dale? Yeah, I guess that would be one that you're kind of left with at the end of it because they do oddly ask that question if he's going to be back after that one season. Like, where's he going to go? His girlfriend lives there. (laughs) yeah my first question why did we need barbara hershey in this movie at all the more i watch this movie the older (laughs) i get the more that romance makes no sense whatsoever and she is probably the most venom spitting woman from small town america i've ever seen (laughs) like she seems like she's a transplant from the bronx Yes, I had this uh, conversation with a friend who said, like, why is she in here and why why is this necessary? 
And I guess um, it's exposition. I She's the one that pulls out the the articles that okay, this is what happened to him, and gives you the backstory on Coach Dale. But the romantic aspect makes no sense whatsoever. Well, you have to have, I don't know, a female of some variety in there. Otherwise, it's, you know, completely testosterone. I don't know. I have not seen a movie that I liked Barbara Hershey in. I'm not a big fan. She just kind of seems a little over the top. I think, if I remember right, she did a few Woody Allen films. That really helps her brand in this particular category in 2022. Yeah. The next question. If there's 55 seconds left and you have a three-point lead, why would you go for three quick possessions since this is before the advent of the shot clock? I need to repeat that. That makes no (laughs) sense. (laughs) Not to mention there still isn't a shot clock in high school basketball. (laughs) Hold the ball. Do you have any others? Oh, uh, <laughs> no, I, I really don't. All right. So we see Strap apologize to get back on the team. But how the fuck did Buddy get back on the team? One game he's gone and all of a sudden they have they've gone from seven players to eight players. And are they just supposed to tell us exactly? Hmm. He came back and nobody noticed. He just started sitting on the bench. <laughs> it took me four times watching the film to figure that out. I mean, it's one of the biggest plateaus. I know it's been, we, we discussed it in the Did You Know, but it was never alluded to until like 20 years after the fact when everybody's like, how the fuck did he get back on the team? <laughs> I'm sure they cut that scene. Yeah. I mean, you could have added that in for one of the extra six minutes to get this movie to two hours. I think you would have been fine. Yeah. All right. The final question, which is actually a somewhat serious one. Is this the best sports movie ever made? I think it very well could be simply because it's not it's not presumptuous. It's not it's not trying to say something beyond what sports is. It is not. Something, it's not a comedy, it's not a spoof of, it's not, this is just pure sports showing what it takes for the average high school athlete and what they're trying to accomplish. I would be hard pressed to find a film that I would rank against it. I think for individual sports, I think there are a lot of good choices. There are a lot of good boxing movies. I think there are actually quite a few good golf movies. Uh, I don't know if I've seen a good tennis movie yet, but not that I really need to. But show me the really great movie that gets the spirit of hockey. Like Slapshot, we're going to discuss in a couple of weeks, but I wouldn't say that's necessarily a great movie because it gets what the spirit of hockey is. Show me the great football movie that gets the spirit of football. Like the really X's and O's. Maybe you could say any given Sunday's about the closest we've gotten. Maybe a remember the Titans kind of aspect. But I don't even think those are quite on the nose. Best football film of all time was originally a TV film that was ultimately released into cinemas. That's Brian's song. But Brian's song isn't necessarily a football movie. It's a story about football players, but it's not a football movie. I think the biggest thing about Hoosiers, and this is where I'm trying to place it, 
is a lot of this has to do with the actual play on the court and making plays at the end of the game. It gets the spirit of what makes basketball exciting. I don't think any other movie really goes through the X's and O's and is able to execute it as well as this. And team sports has always been difficult. Most of the sports movies have to do with stuff that goes on around it. I think if you're going to give any great hockey movie as far as the things, the ins and outs, it's kind of a similar type of movie based on, for the most part, a real story with some obvious fictionalized versions of it. But Miracle from, I think it was like 2004, that was about the 80 Olympic hockey hockey team, might be the closest thing you have to a team sport thing. But then you didn't need to really overanalyze and do a whole lot different. That movie had a lot of nostalgia built into it already because it was only 24 years after it happened. And most of the people that that audience was for was it was either the people that witnessed it or them and their kids that they could easily explain it to. You know, now 40 some years removed from that, it's a little bit more difficult. But I just don't know if there are a lot of other great team X's and O's movies that get the spirit of the sport with which they're depicting. Rocky gets the sport of boxing, but that's an individual movie. Uh, I think there are a couple of good golf movies that get kind of what the spirit of golf is because they're trying to really give you some insight into the game a little bit. While Hoosiers doesn't necessarily go through all of it, it does give you some decent X's and O's type stuff in this movie. And so I would say it's easily the best basketball movie as far as I'm concerned. Although I haven't seen every basketball movie so far, so I I leave my opinion open on that. And I think by default, then, it puts it in the running for what could be the best sports movie of all time. I think right now I would probably place it there. Again, I'm willing to change my mind. But of the sports movies I've grown up with and have been a part of, and I have probably only seen about half of the, the available sports movies, even from the sports movie Boone since about 1977 till now, I would say this is probably at least in the top five, probably in the top three, if not number one overall. I would have to rate this pretty close or in competition with Chariots of Fire. (laughs) Well, we can do Chariots of Fire next week if you'd like. (laughs) Uh, Boy, did that expression loom nemesing. All right. Any final thoughts for the week? No, I, I'm uh, I'm looking forward to our uh, next several weeks of films because there's several on there that I really enjoy, and um, this is a nice outlet from a very hectic and busy life. So I know we've announced that next week or next month is uh, sports movie month, and next week will be major league, and then we are doing. After that, Slapshot and then The Waterboy. We have thrown one other movie into Sports Movie Month because of how the scheduling worked out. And that's going to be Victory from 1981, which is a soccer movie. But then uh, I know we haven't, I'm pretty sure we haven't announced what May was going to be. With the exception of Top Gun, which will be the last movie before we go on vacation this year. Because we wanted to put that one out just before the new movie comes out that's been delayed multiple times. I guess May is going to be Military Courtroom Drama Month. So yes, we're doing the obvious, A Few Good Men, to start the month, but we're also doing The Kane Mutiny and Judgment at Nuremberg, which I think is a pretty good lineup. But uh, in June, we're going to have a little bit more of a hodgepodge. And July, I decided today, 
that we're going to do Best Picture Month, and each week is going to be from a different decade, but I'm going to let you pick all four films. Oh, which decades? Anyone you like. It just has to be different decades for all four of them. Okay. So you got that to kind of ponder over for the next few weeks. All right. I think June we're going to do some rewatches. I think we uh, have decided on North by Northwest as one of the rewatches that we're going to do a little bit ahead of time for when we're supposed to be on vacation. And I think you wanted to do Casablanca in there somewhere. We may also have some other decent stuff, uh, a list episode in there for you. So we've got some exciting stuff coming up for season or the rest of season three so far and kind of going into what we want to do. But we will announce on next week's episode because we record these a week in advance what the result of the Oscars preview episode and the wager is going forward. During the edit for that that I just finished, I think, yesterday before the episode came out, we only have three categories that we did not predict similarly. I know. So it's going to be very, there are going to be very few categories with which you can separate yourself. So if you lose one, you're pretty much close to being sunk. I know, I picked one specifically just to differentiate myself from you. Okay. So I'm pretty sure that was Best Original Screenplay and Cinematography and Best Original Song are the three. Which I don't know if anybody else in America is going to be rooting from their couch as much as either one of us could be for those particular categories. (laughs) Yeah. Where are you headed, cowboy? Nowhere special? Nowhere special. I always wanted to go there. Next week, we will be discussing my favorite baseball movie, Major League. Directed and written by David S. Ward. Starring Tom Beringer, Corbin Burnson, Renee Russo, Charlie Sheen, and Bob Uecker. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that you can join in in our fun. You can also email the show at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. Find us on Instagram, Twitter, and now TikTok at the handle at Podcast. Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM. 